This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. Today we head to Molokai, the Friendly Isle, to talk to Dick Wheeler. He's the owner of Molokai Plumeria. Says at one time the farm was the largest supplier of fresh blooms for lay sellers in the state. But the drought has weakened his orchard, and his farm's original 3,000 trees have been reduced to half that number. They're vulnerable to insects, specifically the plumeria borer, as well as a number of viruses. This includes one found previously in Florida that is now believed to be new both to the United States and to scientists. As he explained to Catherine Cruz, he's concerned that plumeria in Hawaii is under serious threat. We have had a good run. We've been doing it for 35 years. We planted, you know, the 3,000 plus trees, but uh, in the past Especially in the past three or four years, we've had a major problem with the longhorn plumeria borer beetle. It's, uh, it lays its eggs in the tree, digs in, lays its eggs. The larva crawls up through it, spends, I'm, under, I'm told, 90% of its life inside, so you can't even spray the darn things. And uh, it's killing them. It's killing my trees. And not all at once. It's a kind of a slow death over the orchard, but it's it's picked up pace now that the drought has been with us and the trees have been stressed. They're vulnerable and they're they're taking it on the chin, and uh, it's painful to watch. And I I can drive down the road and on the island and see trees in the people's yards that are that are also fallen under, and leads me to think that that could be the end for plumerias in Hawaii. And I sure hope somebody official is working on this and trying to find a natural predator because. I've tried systemic insecticides. I've tried uh, uh, all kinds of things, and um, nothing seems to work very well. And they just they just keep coming. You can't. I, it, the whole time I've been fighting these things, which I've seen them on the orchard for probably ten years, I've I've never I've only once seen one out flying around. So, I mean, I see them landing in my in my water trough, and they kind of die in there. So I know they're out pretty regular, but it's it's a bad situation. So I'm agreeing to this interview, in fact, because I want this broadcast everywhere. I've had I've had head of various ag departments come and visit on the farm, and they're all going, wow, bummer, you know, but uh, not much hope for resolution. Maybe some of your listeners might have, have an, a good idea. So it's not real clear, then, what other places are doing to combat this uh, pest. No, it's not clear at all. And uh, Dr. Criley suggested I cut everything down to a stump and uh, and let it grow back, you know, destroy all the branches and let it grow back. You know, what about the beetle that's, you know, in the neighbor's yard? It just, that's that's just a very temporary solution and not something I wanted to even, even go for. You've been dealing with this for how long? Well, I've seen it on the farm for probably at least 10 years. And uh, but it's been the past three years since the drought set in that that it's just gone it's just gone wacko. I mean it's it's um, it's painful. So you're it's barely hanging on. Yeah, that's that's safe to say. But uh, you know I'm I'm old already. It's time to kind of put the brakes on. But it's not how I pictured retirement. So let's let's just put that that way. We're we're a simple family farm. We're not, you know, it's been a pleasure to be in this business. I mean, we our business is making people happy and celebrating Hawaii. You know, where most of our business goes to the mainland, to to Hawaiian people, or at least people who love Hawaii, and on the mainland, and uh, that's been great fun. It's you know, I I love the stories of Tutu's opening the box and the 
the the smell comes out and they break into tears because it's just it brings them home and it would just be a shame to see uh it is a shame to see what's happening to our to our beloved plumeria on the uh, in in the islands so I, I know they're uh native to the caribbean and what takes care of these pests over there or even where they came from i don't know that even it's it's a mystery to me well, you know, we know when King Kamehameha Day comes around uh, that, uh, you know, the, the lay draping that we see here in Honolulu, that those plumerias come from your farm. People may not know that. It hasn't been that way every time, or perhaps we couldn't even supply it and, and the numbers that they want. And I'm sure that's going to happen this, in the future here because we're down to a lot fewer, a lot fewer flowers than we used to have. Well, that's that's a big issue. So the and, reality uh, is, if if you don't have the flowers to supply the lay sellers, people don't get those lay. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, there's there's I I think there's something like ten farms on the islands, but and I you know I can think of a few. I wouldn't don't even know their names. I just know where they're located. But uh, for a long time there, we've sold half the flowers in the state, if you can believe the Department of Agriculture statistics. So, uh, but but we're not even not even a shadow of that at the moment. It's it's pretty sad. So, I don't know if I'm worthy of your uh, show, but I just to get the the message out that this is a problem and and let's let's really dig into it and commit some resources to, to finding a cure. A while back we had the uh, papaya mealybug that was you know making a mess of our trees, and I thought that was the end then. And the Department of Agriculture was on it, and they came up with this little. Uh, a little wasp, I believe it is, and, and they let loose a little vial on my after a couple of years of research. They were on it, and they uh, we let a little vial of wasp loose, and sure enough, it cleaned it right up. I was very impressed. So it was the natural predator that did the job, and these you know systemic inject in, injections just aren't going to do it. Anyway, that's my story. Yeah, so so you're looking uh, for some help, whether there's another biological control we can try. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to raise awareness. Now, I'm not so much personally looking for, for help. We're, we're going to be okay. I mean, we're just going to, we're going to milk it here till it goes away. But, and as I say, I'm, I'm 74. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of time to hang up the, hang up the rack anyway, or, you know, that's not the phrase, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you've got to downsize. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's time to uh, time to hang hang it up. And uh, but it's it's been. I still get out there and work every day. It's it's. But you know, I, I've seen the neighbors' trees go down, and uh, it hurts. So, are you the only plumeria farm there on Molokai? Uh, there's another small one over by the airport mm-hmm. that they 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 do a few commercially. But they, I think they send them to Oahu. They've got a couple mm-hmm. of uh, lay shops they're, they deal with all the time. But they they grow, you know, tuberose and and oh, other and right. Yeah. Okay. So they're not okay. they're not dedicated to plumerias. And and you are primarily. Uh, that's all we've got. Just just plumerias. And then what is it about plumeria that that gets you that you love so much? Because you were doing bees before. <laughs> It has to be the fragrance. Well, it's beautiful too, but it's just—it's just—you uh, know—it has—it uh, has become symbolic for good reason. I mean, it just—it just grows on you. Who doesn't love a nice plumeria lay? It's—it's um, 
I think that's what it is, and, and making people happy, glad to enjoy it, pleased that I can, you know, when they told me, they told me when I started that you can't send them to the mainland, they just, they just don't last, and we figured out how to do it, and we've been doing it now for 30 years at least, and uh, it's, it's worked out very nicely. So you get joy in making other people happy. Exactly right. That's payment beyond the money thing. It's, it has been a lot of fun, and I've met a lot of nice people, too. Sharing the aloha is what drew Dick Wheeler to dedicate the last three and a half decades to growing the fragrant flower. Now he's looking for solutions. The University of Hawaii College of Tropical Agriculture has been researching that new virus and expects the work to be published before the end of the year. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe. In today's Backyard Quiz, we'll ask you about Korean-American history as it unfolded here in Hawaii. The first Korean President Syngman Rhee arrived in the territory of Hawaii in 1913. Korea had been under colonial rule of Japan since 1910, and Korean plantation laborers were resistant to Japanese rule. With the financial backing of Korean workers, Rhee founded a church coordinated political activities and was a key player in the provisional government of the Republic of Korea. While that movement was based in Shanghai and Chongqing, Koreans in Hawaii remained heavily involved. In 1948, with U.S. backing, Rhee became president of the Republic of Korea. By 1960, he was deposed by the opposition with the support of student protesters. He was flown out of Korea by the CIA. He died in Hawaii in 1965. Now, today's question, what is the name of the Oahu church that refounded? Here's a clue. It still has a statue of him on its grounds. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Have you voted yet? Ballots have been mailed out across the state, and we're now less than two weeks away from when the votes will be counted. 
This election season, we've been keying in on a few races on the conversation, including the contest for mayor of Maui County. Yesterday, we heard from retired judge and challenger Richard Bisson. Today, we hear from incumbent mayor Mike Victorino. And our conversation started on the same topic with both candidates. The challenge of how to increase access to housing that local residents can afford. Well, our plan has been put into action over the last couple of years. Since the pandemic started to wind down, we've been working hard to make improvements in this area. Now, right now, we've built over 1,400 new units in the last three years. We have nearly 800 under construction right this very moment and over 5,000 in the pipeline to be completed over the next three to four years. And this is really important because we formed this public-private partnership, which is really unique for us here in Maui County. Developers and the county are working together to make sure these units are obtainable and affordable for rental purposes. And in the sense that they will be kept in some areas in perpetuity. In other words, very much like the Hawaiian home model, there'll be some units that will always stay in this category so that future generations can be able to utilize it. We've also purchased like the Wayside Lahaina apartments and that's helped an awful lot. Even though those are 20 units, but that kept 20 families from being displaced on the streets for short-term rentals. So we're building, we're buying, we're working real hard and I think we have to focus over the next uh, five to seven years to really get caught up and get ahead of the curve when it comes to workforce housing and housing for our lower income classifications. You know, the point you make on on getting caught up, you've taken some actions to to raise prices for for non-resident property buyers. Do you feel there there should be any further steps to make it easier for local residents to buy property than for someone who's not using that property as a primary residence? We're looking into doing further actions. You know, of course, we have to keep it legal. This There is a United States constitutional right to live anywhere in the United States. And so we got to make sure we do it properly. But I think we are and we have already started and we continue to look for methods that we can uh, enhance the ability of our residents to buy and uh, uh, make sure that those who are not occupying these units or not occupying these homes We'll pay more in taxes, you know, and that way we can offset our affordable housing fund with these additional revenues so we can continue to build for our workforce, our gap groups, and especially our police, fire, teachers, our essential workers that every day are a big part of our community. They work hard. They're raising their families. They are a vital part of our community for all aspects of our lifestyle. And, you know, we need to make sure we pay attention to them, not just the 80% 80% and under, but all the way up to 140% average medium income. One related issue is rental housing. Would you have plans in your next term to look at any different strategies when it comes to increasing the pool of available rentals that are available in the county? Yes. We're looking now to propose programs like lease-to-own, rent-to-own, and this will give people a chance to work on their credit, build some equity, and either buy the unit they're in and if that's available or save up and when they move out then they'll have some equity to purchase a unit somewhere else uh in the in the uh workforce housing developments that we are setting up so there are many programs that we are looking at we also have our first time homeowners that we subsidize thirty thousand dollars for down payment and closing costs we're looking to increase that in the near future 
you know, I think the difference between myself and uh, my opponent is really, uh, I believe that we are in a critical situation where we need to put our money where our mouth is, put the infrastructure so that development can be done and that our the savings will be passed on to our workforce and our residents uh, that live here and also make sure that our residents, multi-generational families, have the opportunity to buy here and continue to live here and raise their families here. We're going to make them our priority to the extent of the law that allows us to do that. And on paying for the infrastructure developments that would be required in what you're talking about, what's the plan for payment on that? Well, a lot of it will, uh, we have a good chunk of money coming in for infrastructure through the federal infrastructure program that was passed by Congress last year. I think we're looking at something like between $86 million and $94 million coming to Maui directly. And that's a big, huge chunk of money that can help us upgrade and expand not only our wastewater system, our water systems, our sewer systems, and most importantly, our R1 reuse water systems that will help augment and ensure that the developments that come in will have the water and waste treatment systems to help the community. And more importantly, our new waste treatment plant that we're building here in Central Maui will be able to provide 12 to 15 million gallons of R1 water every day for farming and irrigation purpose right here in Central Maui. So there's some major plans that are in the work that we've already started that hopefully in the next four years, we'll be able to complete the vast majority of that. You know, we're not talking about what we're going to do. We're already started. And that's why I'm asking the residents for four more years to make sure we can get much of this completed and whatever is not completed will be completed shortly thereafter for the people and residents, our multi-generational residents here in Maui County. Another topic that gets a lot of attention in terms of tourism, you support the Maui Nui Destination Management Plan, have had a role in that. But beyond that, what needs to be done to balance the economic benefits of tourism with the living conditions of local residents? Well, we started that when I first came into office. We declared that Sundays and holidays, no commercial activities will be done in our beach parks. And this way, the residents would have Sundays and holidays for themselves and their families, not to traverse over surfboards and scuba tanks and windsurfing kites and all of that. Our parks are for our people, our residents, and that they can enjoy it on the weekends like that. In fact, we're going to ask the council to add Saturday. So it would be Saturday, Sunday, and holidays. So now our families can enjoy long weekends together where they can come in, enjoy the weekend with the family, and not have to be um, bothered by commercial activities in our beach parks. So that I started when I first came in. I want to expand on it. Other reservations, Park Maui is another program that we're putting together. And what that does is make sure that our residents will have free parking in some parts of the day, the whole parking lot. Other parts of the day, they would have select area where they'd be free, and the visitor would pay for the parking that would be made available to them. That will augment and help us with repairs, maintenance, preserving our natural resources. This is what that money could be used for. And most importantly, our residents feel that they are our priority, and they always have been. And I want to make sure they are our priority, that they can come and enjoy the recreational facilities with their family and not be overwhelmed with with the hospitality industry. You don't agree with the Maui County Council's moratorium on construction of new hotels. 
What do you think might be a different approach to over-tourism that makes sense in a coming term for you? Well, I think, first of all, getting um, working hard, and we have done a pretty good job of eliminating illegal vacation rentals, which is taking up our neighborhoods. Our neighborhoods are not made to be destinations. They're made for our residents to live and raise their families in. So we've worked uh, 1,600 units have been taken offline, and we're constantly monitoring these, these systems. Airbnb and Expedia signed an agreement with us about a year and a half ago, and it's working out very well, but we've got to be vigilant. Our, our enforcement agency is working real hard to make sure that there's not a major upsurge in um, residential uh, units being taken up for vacation rentals or short-term rentals. The other part of this is making sure that we set up reservation systems for some of our attractions like we do at Haleakala National Park, Wainapanapa Park, where people know today you cannot go because you're this whole, it's full. It's at capacity. And that's another method of making sure that we will have the proper balance between our hospitality industry and our residents. Remember, Maui Nui is our home and is not a destination. So all the steps we've taken and continue to work together with only, not only with our hospitality industry, but with our environmental group, nonprofits, uh, Hawaiian community, because it's their heritage, their culture that we need to continue to protect. It's all collaboration and relationships that we've built over the years, and that's where we're moving forward. And I think we have a good, good plan in our, uh, that will be uh, not only rolled out, but already been implemented in some, some areas already. What would you say your biggest achievement as mayor has been? What are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the fact that we came to one of the most horrific times this world this nation and this state has seen, and our county was included of that. We are now regenerating our economy. Um, we are diversifying with agriculture, technology, wellness, and healthcare. Other programs are coming in. So with broadband being included now that we are expanding our broadband system, I think this is what we've accomplished. We've turned the corner, and now we're moving forward, and we are building we have almost 6,000 units that will be up and running for our residents to live and enjoy their families here, work here in Maui County. And that's what excites me more than anything else, our accomplishment to make sure our residents really have, a, have hope. They really have a future here and not talking about it, but actually doing it. And what have you not yet accomplished as mayor that you would want to achieve in another term? The diversification of our economy. We've only started and uh, the pandemic took two years away from almost all of the counties all, all over the world. Two years have been lost because of the pandemic. And now we are ramping it up, making those changes so that we can have livable wage jobs for our, our residents here, technology and, and areas of wellness and healthcare that we will be benefactors as residents also, that we will have that available and that we don't have to always fight a Honolulu or maybe to the mainland for treatments because we'll have it available here because a visitor wants to come here and get well and wellness and healthcare will be our one of our major priorities and we're working with the healthcare system here in Maui County to move in that direction. So um, there's so many things that we're excited about and but those have not been accomplished and we need to continue to focus on them because I believe the people of Maui County will be the benefactor at the end of the day. 
state election office says all residents should have received their ballots in the mail by now. If you haven't received yours, contact your county elections office. Election day is Tuesday, November 8th. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening the Doris Duke Theater with art house films from around the world, live performances, and more, reflecting Hawaii's cultures and communities. HonoluluMuseum.org slash theater. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mark Cafe, we talk to the most connected human on Earth, We'll find out how Chris Dancy is blazing a trail for digital health and wearable technologies, which has earned him the title Mindful Cyborg. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Funding is always a challenge for nonprofit organizations across the state. This year, nearly $50 million in state grants aren't reaching groups who need the funding to run programs. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Blaze Lovell has that story and joins us on the line today. Blaze, you write that bureaucratic holdups and missing language from the state's budget bill are holding this up. What's, what's the starting point? Yeah, that's correct, Bill. And, you know, it really starts back at that budget bill that you mentioned and just to backpedal a little bit to give everybody some background. Every year, a lot of nonprofits, they come to the legislature and they ask the legislature for these grant funds. Um, But every year, the legislature puts out this budget bill that, you know, says so-and-so nonprofit is getting $50,000, this nonprofit's getting $100,000, and they always include this one key line that says that the money is appropriated as a grant pursuant to Chapter 42F. Chapter 42F is the state's grant law. That line is missing um, from this latest budget bill, and we've been told that that sort of complicates the process moving forward for the state agencies that all need to oversee how these grant awards are uh, funded and then allocated to these nonprofits that need them. It's And, you know, it's not just the legislature that uh, has complicated things. We've been told that, you know, there's a lot of different moving parts to this process, uh, and it's really hard to lay the blame at just, you know, one office or even just one branch of government this time. Do, do we know in the original bill, was that an intentional or an unintentional omission of that line? It, you know, it seems unintentional. Uh, the The effect is that, you know, um, they need to, these nonprofits would now need to go through a more complicated procurement process. Obviously, that wasn't the legislature's intent. They, you know, wanted these things to go through as grants, which is a much simpler process to these nonprofits. And right now, there's some, you know, uh, discussion between the attorney general's office and the Office of Budget and Finance over how, how to move forward. A lot of things are sort of getting stuck there. Uh, another <laughs> kind of facet about this that further complicates things is typically 
uh, all of these grant awards would be doled out to various state agencies to oversee. So if you're a nonprofit that wants to help farmers, you'd be working with the Department of Agriculture Mm -hmm. on your grant. This time, they were all funneled into this one state agency called the Office of of Community Services in the Department of Labor. It's it, it had a small staff uh, last year. There was just about four people there. But now they're overseeing all $49 million worth of these uh, state grants. And so one of the theories out there is, you know, they may be getting backlogged at that area. We, we tried to reach out to them to uh, get a better understanding of where they are in the process and what might be holding things up, but we haven't heard back. And in the meantime, your reporting shows that this has uh, all led to some extended paperwork all the way around. Right. Part of it could be because of that, you know, uh, extended procurement process that the nonprofits are having to go through. But it's not just that there's, you know, more paperwork, but some of this paperwork is coming later in the year than a lot of nonprofits expected. Uh, One of the first steps is they have to fill out these eligibility forms so that the state can verify that you know, a nonprofit organization is even eligible to start receiving this money. Usually that comes a little bit earlier in the year, but some nonprofits we spoke to say they just got those forms last week. And what generally has been the reaction of nonprofits that you've uh, spoken with? They're worried. You know, a lot of them are really worried. Not all of them wanted to go on the record uh, because, you know, they didn't want to uh, irritate anyone's state government. But a, a few that did, you know, described the programs you're trying to get off the ground that they just can't. One is Access Surf Hawaii. They work with people with disabilities to get them into water sports. They wanted to implement a new volunteer training program to get uh, more volunteers off the ground to, you know, you know, beef up their programs. But they can't get that started without the money that's, you know, supposed to be coming down from the state. Holding up, uh, holding up program execution on a, on a lot of fronts. Blaze Lovell, thanks for uh, thanks for following that in. He's checking in with today's reality check. Uh, thanks, Blaze. Thanks, Bill. You can read Blaze's full story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. It's nearly two years ago exactly from the start of an exciting and popular project on this program. The Manu Minute turns two tomorrow. To mark the occasion, we're revisiting the call of one of Hawaii's rarest birds, the alala, or Hawaiian crow. Alala are currently extinct in the wild. Today, Manu Minute's host, Patrick Hart, offers you a chance to imagine what the forests might have sounded like with the song of the Hawaiian crow. The alala is a velvety black native Hawaiian crow that's actually more closely related to ravens. They were once common on Hawaii Island, but their numbers declined drastically in the 20th century due to habitat loss, hunting, and disease, to the point where there were none left in the wild. Today, they're one of the world's rarest birds. A total of 132 alala remain at two breeding facilities in Hawaii, managed by the San Diego Zoo. Alala played important roles as seed dispersers of many native forest trees. In 2017 and 2018, a number of birds were released into the wild on the slopes of Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island. 
in hopes of re-establishing a wild breeding population. Things seemed hopeful for the first two years, but the native Hawaiian hawk, or eo, began to successfully prey on too many of them. So by late 2020, the last five wild birds were brought back into captivity. Like humans, Alala learn their songs from each other, and recent research has shown that their vocalizations have changed in the years since they've been in captivity. Some territorial calls that were once common in wild birds are no longer heard in captive ones, like this. And also this one. Interestingly, the newly released wild birds seem to be learning a new vocabulary. And for a brief couple years, the soundscape of a Hawaiian forest once again included the calls of the alala. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about a Honolulu church founded by the first president of Korea, Syngman Rhee. It has a statue of him on the grounds. Many early Korean immigrants to Hawaii were Christians, and if they weren't upon leaving Korea, many were converts by the time their boat docked in Oahu. Membership in a particular church was also affected by political divisions and allegiances. Syngman Rhee, an anti-Japanese political activist, scholar, and Christian minister was part of those dynamics. First built in 1938, the colorful church in Luliha was recognizable by its unique architecture, a replica of the Konghua Moon, the main tower gate into Seoul's ancient royal palace. Due to structural problems, the church was raised and rebuilt in 2006 for a whopping $3.5 million. The statue of Rhee can be seen at the Korean Christian Church on Luliha Street. That's today's quiz. And we had a quick answer. Arthur Park in Mikiki, quick to the phone. And if you have a uh, if you have a quiz that you'd like to share, you can write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Richard Strozzi Heckler. I'm author of Embodying the Mystery. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about somatic wisdom, 
for emotional, energetic, and spiritual awakening. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Le Jardin Academy, a PK-12 school located on a Kailua mountainside, committed to nurturing each student's passions. November 5th open house registration at lejardinacademy.org. Science writer Julie Burwall traveled the world to investigate the perils that face coral reefs. Her latest book, Life on the Rocks, offers both a warning about the fragile future of these ocean ecosystems and examples of hope from scientists and communities across the globe who are pioneering solutions. Now Burwald's back on the road again to share what she's learned. She stopped by her studio to speak with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote. Here's Burwald. At the end of September, I went to Miami to talk at this Reef Futures meeting. And then I went to Budapest, and then I went to the Netherlands, and then I stopped at home in Texas, and then I went to California, and now I'm here. Wow. So it's been a, yes, world one. Wow. <laughs> and, and the book Life on the Rocks is about coral reefs and how coral reefs can represent larger communities and what we can learn from that. When you were traveling around discussing this book, how did different communities, some of which are, are landlocked, <laughs> respond to this concept? You know, that was totally interesting to me because especially when I got invited to Hungary, which is right in the middle of Europe, I mean, n no ocean for miles and well, hours and hours even by car, I was surprised. But people f were, I think there's a sense that the future is kind of in our hands as humans, and and that includes things that are far away, like coral reefs. And and there was a real sense that there, people understood that the coral reefs are at risk, and they wanted to know what's happening, what are we doing, what can we do. I think it's it's in a larger sense like we're all on this planet together, and so they wanted to understand like what these really important ecosystems were all about. And actually, the most interesting part in Budapest was. People were interested about economic solutions to these problems. So maybe they can't impact the reefs like directly through, you know, the way you could here in Hawaii by like worrying about runoff or worrying about sanitation issues or fishing issues. But they understand that economics may be the way that they could play a role. So it was really interesting to be there. Mm. And do you think that that's a step that people need to make in general? Do we need to start thinking of ecosystems beyond just our shores when we're thinking about solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think that what the reefs do is show us how interconnected our planet is and how things don't stop, right? There are no bounds on this planet, except for like maybe where, where the atmosphere <laughs> ends, but it all matters and it's all connected. And so I hope, I, I think that the the generation who is really going to have to deal with these issues is so much more keenly aware of it than, say, my generation was. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that is a shift that we're starting to see. Um, and hopefully there's time for us to make this turn that we need to make. Unlike folks in Hungary, many folks in Hawaii do have connections, first-hand connections to coral reefs here. I think of the bays that I grew up swimming in. 
What was your first interaction with this environment? Yeah, I grew up landlocked, like like the people in Hungary. <laughs> so I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, which is in really the center of the mainland. And um, I had never gone to a I think I went to a beach when I was a child, but, you know, never with a snorkel and a mask. And so my junior year of college, I got the opportunity to go to Israel and do a study abroad program, and I was miserable. I I didn't connect with the people on the program. I was eating way too many falafel. Like, it was problematic. And so um, I walked past past this sign on the side of a building, and it said, Marine Ecology Course, one week in the Red Sea. And I was like, yes, like, something to get me out of here. And... I basically got off a bus in a lot in the Red Sea and looked up at these incredibly red mountains and this incredible blue sea. And before I could even take that in, they were throwing a mask and snorkel at me and like, go look. And I stuck my head underneath the waves there and I was like, oh my gosh, like we live on the same planet with this. And you in Hawaii know what, what I saw. It was this incredible, vibrant life, this this world that was part of Earth, and I like just had never known it. And so I said, I'm going to be a marine biologist, and that was kind of the start of it. Wow. And then what was the next step after that? Well, the next steps didn't go quite so straight as, as you might hope. Um, I, I, uh, I applied to grad school to study coral. Uh, I got rejected by every lab that I applied to because I probably wasn't like the best candidate, having not taken very much biology, like one class at that point. But I did go to grad school to study satellite imagery of the ocean. Um, And this was in the 90s. And it was the first time we were able to look at the ocean from above and see what was there. What I was looking at was photosynthesis. In the ocean, the base of the food chain are these little plants, single-celled plants called phytoplankton. And they photosynthesize just like trees do on on land. And so they take carbon dioxide and water and mix it with the sun's energy and make sugar. But they suck carbon dioxide down in the process. They, they pull it out of the atmosphere. And so at the time, we, were, we knew already that we were adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels. But until we had these satellite images from above of what the phytoplankton were doing, we didn't know how much carbon dioxide was coming out of the atmosphere through the ocean you know, through these phytoplankton. And so that was what I worked on for my dissertation. And and what we found out is about a third of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has actually been taken up by the oceans. So climate change has been mitigated already by the oceans. And we would be in a much worse place if we didn't have all those little single cells out there doing their business all the time. When you were doing this work in the 90s, did you anticipate any portion of the position that reefs would be in now? Yeah, you know, there were inklings of it. Um, I remember I remember in the when I was in grad school in the early 90s, we learned for the first time that the coral reefs spawn on mass. And um, yeah, in the Great Barrier Reef, I, I mean, it wasn't known that corals all release their eggs and their sperm at the first t- at all, you know, according to the light of the moon. And it's this incredible thing. Um, so that was being discovered. And at the same time, there were diseases that were reported from coral reefs, especially in the Caribbean. And there was a huge outbreak of this crown of thorns, stars, crown of thorns starfish um, that really decimated a lot of the reefs. So, 
And then there were some reports of these mass bleachings, which is um, really the biggest problem for coral reefs today. Although all of these issues are, are you know, destabilizing of ecosystems and because of, of diseases of some like echinoderms like crown of thorns or um, in the Caribbean, there's a, a sea urchin that's been really sickened and that's destabilized some of the ecosystems there. Um, but the, the bleaching, which is ultimately the biggest threat to coral reefs right now, that kind of started in the, there was one mass bleaching in the 80s. There were a couple at the end of the 90s. So yeah, I mean, there were some inklings even back when I was in grad school. But, and there were some people already predicting that as the planet continues to warm, this is going to become more and more problematic. But it really wasn't until the 2010s that that the real severity of the issue became so clear. And have you had the opportunity to go back to the Red Sea, to the first reef you were immersed in? You know, I did, and that's actually kind of a good news story. When I was there, one way people assess the health of a reef is by how much hard coral cover there is. And, um, you know, 50% is pretty excellent. And the reef there was maybe 60% when I was diving on it initially. And then apparently in between, it fell down to about 20%. And that was because of some pol a pollution issue. They put in some fish farms quite close to the reef that just uh, the effluent from the fish farms ran right down onto the reef and the reef started dying. And there was a huge legal battle and eventually the fish farms were pulled and the reef came back. And so I did go back in like 20, I think 16, and um, it looked really good. And I was shocked. I wasn't expecting to see that. And what I discovered was that, yeah, reefs are resilient. You know, they can come back when we take care of them. And that's a really good lesson to know that, like, it's not all over for the reefs. Like, even if they are suffering, if we can right the wrongs, they do tend to recover. Mm. Is there anything particular that you are interested in seeing while you're in Hawaii? either work that scientists are doing or about these ecosystems that we have here? I, um, well, one story I tell in the book. So uh, this this idea of bleaching. So coral are animals, right? They, um, they are kind of, they're very closely related to sea anemones and jellyfish. So they have like tentacles and mouths and they eat their prey. And they actually have the same kind of stinging cells that jellyfish have. Um, and so that, that's how they, they hunt for their little zooplankton prey. But what makes corals so kind of magnificent are that they have formed a really tight symbiosis with an algae. And that algae does just what the phytoplankton I studied in grad school do, which is they photosynthesize and make sugar. And then they feed like 90% of that sugar straight to the coral. And that is the coral superpower. And so what the coral can do with all that sugar energy is build limestone reefs. And that is the great architecture which supports these amazing ecosystems. It's said that a quarter of all marine species rely on the coral reefs at some point in their life. What bleaching is, is when the water temperature rises by a few degrees, the algae leave the coral. And we don't know if it's because the coral is saying like, I'm not feeling very good. Um, I'm, my immune system needs to ramp up and get rid of everything that's not coral in me. And so they kick the algae out. Or if it's the algae saying, 
my host is not supporting me the way they're supposed to. I'm going to reveal myself to the coral's immune system and get myself kicked out. We don't know which one hap is happening, but it happens. And then when the algae leaves, they take their color with them, the green, and they also take the sugar that they usually feed the coral. So the coral starve. Bleaching, mass bleachings anyway, weren't really seen before the 1980s. But in the 1970s here in Hawaii, they were dis it was discovered, bleaching, over by the Hawaiian Electrical Power Station. It's called Electric Beach now. The power station uses the seawater to cool its turbines and then releases warm water back on the reef. And that was built in the 1950s. But in the 70s, when the Clean Water Act was passed, it became required for someone to go out and survey and see what releasing hot water into the ocean was doing. And two scientists from, from um, the University of Hawaii were responsible for doing that. And they were the first person to people to recognize what bleaching was and to name it and to publish it in the scientific literature. And so I would like to go and see that beach and see what the coral look like around the outfall. Thank you so much for taking some time to come to our studio while you're on this worldwide journey. Thank you for having me here. It's really, really a privilege. Hawaii's early role in the history of the study of coral bleaching. Science writer Julie Burwald, author of Life on the Rocks, speaking with conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the underwater world of coral reefs. That is the program for today, but up tomorrow we'll hear from Representative Ed Case, also from Navy Admiral John Wade. He's leading the defueling of the Navy's Red Hill Fuel Facility. Got a story you'd like to share? You can leave your feedback for us on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can post comments to Facebook at The Conversation HPR. And email works too, of course, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Bill Dorman. Catherine's back tomorrow when you can join us for more of The Conversation. Thank you.